Welcome to the First Pres podcast, which features the message from this past Sunday's worship. If you would like to worship with us in person, our services are Sunday mornings at 8.30, 9, 10, and 11 o'clock. You can learn more about First Pres at www.first-pres.org. As we go through these tough questions, friends, would you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4? As we're looking at verses 6 through 13, I really do encourage you to pull a Bible out or to turn on a Bible as you receive the Word of God in front of you. We're entering right into the middle of a large argument here, and you'll be so blessed, so helped to have the Word of God in front of you today, and it will be on the screens before you. And as we turn to Scriptures, let's turn our hearts to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, would you open our hearts by your power and by your love and grace that we might receive your word which is able to save our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 4, 6 through 13, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We're grateful for God's word. The Bible is bogus. That's the question. Really? Always check your references. I was surprised to find a few quotes uh, online as I was searching the internet. Uh, here's one from Abraham Lincoln. It says, the problem with quotes on the internet <clears throat> is that it's hard to verify their authenticity, which I think is absolutely right. I mean, I, I wouldn't expect anything less from Abraham Lincoln. Or I kept digging, I found a, another one. It said, use the force, Luke. A quote from Dumbledore with a picture of Patrick Stewart who plays John Luke Picard in Star Trek, The Next Generation. <laughs> I'm not sure that all fits. Uh, is there, whoever can decode that after the service, just put your hand in the, you, you understand what's happening there. We ought to be a little more careful. We ought to be a little more cautious, particularly when it matters. 
And for us, friends, as believers, for Christians who who believe and, and are following Christ, there is no collection of words that matters more to us than this book we call the Bible. In our church, we make the claim that this book is actually, to quote the Westminster Confession, the Word of God written, given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. Now, that's a big claim. Not everyone is going to to accept that claim. Not all your friends are going to say, that makes perfect sense to me, right on the face of it. That's an enormous claim to make. And so what do you say when a friend says to you, the Bible is bogus? You should walk away from that. Well, friends, if we lose the word, we will lose our way. But let's understand their position. If you're not a believer, you probably have a very hard time figuring out why Christians that you know, why the friends that you have who who believe and follow Jesus grant so much authority in their lives to an ancient book of wisdom written thousands of years ago. I mean, why would you do that, right? It's unfathomable. It's hard to understand why they would put so much emphasis on the Bible. You've probably heard the arguments that, oh, it was written by, uh, by authors other than what it claims, or there's been all kinds of, of corruptions of the text down through the centuries, or maybe you have heard that it was really only meant for the people for whom it was originally written anyway, and so it's hopelessly anachronistic. If that's where you are, if you believe those things, well, then why on earth would you submit your life to the authority of a book like this? Why would you do it? You know, what, what would compel you? Particularly, they would think, when this book starts to place limits on your behavior. It starts to tell you about things that, that can happen or, or can't happen or should happen or shouldn't happen in your life. And some of them, some of them are very hard. If you submit your life to this book, for example, you're, you're going to start to, to, to believe that that uh, marriage is something for, for one man and one woman to enter into a covenant. For I can marry, but I can only marry someone of the opposite sex. Well, that can be very stark in our day. If you submit yourself to this word, you're going to start to, to, uh, to believe that you need to give generously from your hard-earned money. People think, why in the world would you do that? If you submit to this book, you're going to start to change your calendar. You're going to start to want to give weekly worship to the Lord, to gather in the community of faithful, to worship God, and to have that on your calendar, even when it pushes other things off, other things that might be much more appealing because you've submitted your life to the authority of the Word of God. And your friend says, why in the world would you do that? Some would even say, there's something wrong with a person who seems to love an ancient book of wisdom more than they love the people around them. Whoa, now there you just have to hit pause. We have to deal with that right away, right? Because if, you're, if your friend or the person you're in a conversation with believes that, that we love our Bible more than we love them, then something's gone wrong because these, this Bible, these scriptures teach us 
to love. They say, above all, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so when someone gets the idea that I love my, my scriptures or I love my moral rectitude more than I love the person in front of me, well, then we've got a lot of work to do right away because if you love the word of God, you will love your neighbor, amen? But that's the problem. That's the argument, you see. Someone will say to you, why would you submit your life to that and let, let it guide your life, this, this one ancient book of, of wisdom? Don't you know the Bible is bogus? Well, this passage in Hebrews is a challenge to grab. It jumps in into the middle of an argument, part of a long argument to prove that Jesus is greater than Moses. In fact, that Jesus supersedes all who've come before him. And it, the text it, it takes up, it's wrestling with the text of Psalm 95. And in particular, it's wrestling with what is meant by the phrase entering God's rest. Now, Psalm 95 is a psalm, you can read it on your own. It's a psalm about when the people of God had been liberated from slavery. They've come out of Egypt, but they still doubted the Lord. And so Hebrews is wrestling with this psalm, saying, what does the Bible mean when it says that God declared in Psalm 95, they shall never enter my rest? Or what does the Bible mean when it says this phrase, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Or what does it mean, even by that word, today? What does today mean? You see, it's an argument about the meaning of Scripture. It says, how how can we get to the bottom of what Psalm 95 is really teaching us? It's an argument about Scripture. And what the argument says is that God's rest, that phrase, does have a meaning. It means God's kingdom. It means God's eternal kingdom a place where we are at peace with God, where there's eternal life and where we're at home. It's a place that Jesus brings and the scripture is saying it's in front of you. It's still in front of you as long as it is called today. You enter the rest of God by believing the word of God. You enter God's rest, God's kingdom. You enter God's rest by believing God's word. That's what it's saying. So to put a point on it, the argument is when God speaks, you ought to listen. It was set up in Hebrews 3.12. The whole argument is set up here where it says this. It says, see to it. Watch out. Take care of it. Pay attention. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you, not a single one of you, has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. It says watch out for that. You can't turn away. If you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. If you hear the word of God, as the word of God comes to you, don't harden your heart against it. To flip it around, he's saying, if you hear the word of God, soften your heart. Can you soften your heart and receive God's word? Can you take God at his word? 
in the middle of this argument where they're arguing about what does Scripture really mean, this sort of Bible study on Psalm 95. What does this phrase mean? What's God trying to tell me when he gives me this sort of a, uh, of a word and he challenges me in this way? In the middle of all of this, we get, uh, we are told what the word of God is. In verse 12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Why so much debate? Why so much argument about Psalm 95, about the meaning of that word and that phrase and that sentence and that verse of that psalm of this Bible? Why dig so deep into these things? Because the Word of God is alive and it has power and it is God coming toward you to speak to you to cut through all that is keeping you from him and to bring you life. The word of God has power. The word of God is accompanied by the spirit of God. Just as when you and I speak and we we use words, the words that we use are carried along by the breath that we're using to form those words. The word of God is carried along by the spirit of God and it is living and active and has power. The word of God has its own self-authenticating power. I might just be old school here. I might just be, you know, too long in Christian bubbles, you know. But I just think the Word of God is different. It has power to it that's different. Whenever I'm, uh, I'm sifting through social media, I'm filtering through Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or something, all these good things are coming up, all these interesting things that people say, oh, that's a great quote. Oh, Albert Einstein said that. I didn't know that. Oh, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> you know, and I think, well, that's fantastic. That's really good. But then the Bible comes along. And a verse of scripture rolls up and it just sits differently. It's, it's like a rock in the middle of a bunch of sand. Did you know that uh, Americans today are, are 20% tattooed? One out of five. If you have a tattoo today, would you just... No, 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 don't. don't. <laughs> you can show your tattoos to each other after the service. Uh, One out of five. And I've noticed that a lot of these tattoos are Scripture. Have you noticed that? I don't know how many. But, and, and also, I don't know if I'm supposed to read somebody's tattoo or not, you know? Like, you see it there, and then you kind of lean in to read it and think, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. But, um, but when I notice, when I notice, I notice a lot of Scripture out there. The Word of God seems to have power to it. It seems to have a power that the world has a hard time explaining. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper. It's doing its own work, you see. It's alive. It's not just sitting there. It's active. It's working on you. It's sharp. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing Soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You see, the Lord is, is working on you through his word. And this isn't the only place that the word is compared to a sword. In, in Ephesians six seventeen, it says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And in Revelation, the Messiah, when the Messiah speaks, the word is a, a sword coming out of his mouth. It's powerful. It's penetrating 
And don't get too wrapped up in the, you know, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. What it's saying is the word is, is penetrating. It gets through. When Peter was preaching in, on Pentecost, he was preaching from the Psalms and from Joel. And in Acts chapter 2, it says, when Peter finished his sermon, the people were cut to the heart. The word of God, it cuts straight in, all the way in to the very core It's not passive. It's moving towards you with power. See, when you really get to reading the Bible, when you really get to to hearing the Word of God, to listening for the Word of God, you realize I'm not reading the Word of God. The Word of God is reading me. It's showing me my life. It's showing me my world. And as I read the Bible, what the perspective that I get is that God knows. He knows. There's nothing hidden. Verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare my whole life. This word of God, it cuts into us and it just shows that everything is just on display. God knows. He knows everything about you. He knows everything you've done. And he cuts through all of that, all of the facade, all of the falseness all the fake identity. He knows who you are. He knows. And he loves you. And before him, his eyes see everything before him to whom we must give account. You know that when you were a little kid, you remember when being a little kid and getting, sort of going off and doing something wrong, getting into all kinds of mischief that you shouldn't have done, and then you turn for home and you kind of walk in the front door and you look your mother in the eye And you can tell. She knows. How does she know? I don't know how she knows, but she knows. And and you're just exposed. Friends, that's what it's like. The word of God in your life. God knows. He knows. He knows it all. Nothing's hidden, you know. He's seen it all, and he cuts straight through it, bringing his word, and his word for us is grace. We have to take God at his word. So then, uh, the Bible is bogus. You're in a conversation and your friend says, the Bible is bogus. Well, what is the Bible? The Bible isn't one book. The Bible is, is 66 books all collected together, written by over three dozen authors, some known, some unknown by name, over the course of about 1,500 years. It contains all kinds of literature. It contains wisdom, prophecy, poetry, history, epistles, letters, back and forth. And it has all these different genres of literature. In fact, a lot of misunderstandings of Scripture come from not understanding what genre we're reading at different parts of the Bible. A poem conveys truth in a different way than a history conveys truth. A wisdom book that begins uh, kind of once upon a time conveys truth in a different way from a history book that begins when Quirinius was governor of Syria or when Cyrus was king of Persia. And a lot of misunderstandings are simply from not understanding the context and the genre. But Christians, we say something profound about this book. We say it's inspired. As Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, for all Scripture is breathed out by God, intimately by His breath. 
all Scripture, every word, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But set that aside for a moment, the inspiration of Scripture, because your, your conversation partner isn't going to buy that at all. And so set that aside for just a moment. Ancient texts are measured for their authority and historicity on the basis of a few key factors. One of them is the time passing between the event and and the first attestation of, of writing it down. How long was there between when the event happened and when it was written down? A second one is, can we verify the author and the author's relationship to the events? You know, who wrote it? And what sort of authority did they have to write something down? And then the, the amount, and you might not know this, one of the ways that historians judge ancient documents is the amount or the number of handwritten manuscripts that correspond of that document prior to the invention of the printing press. How many copies were there? How many ways can we look at different angles and say, oh yeah, that must have been right? Now, the Bible... And you can research this for yourself. I'm not going to argue all these points out. But I want to go a different direction, actually. But research this for yourself. The Bible outpaces every other historical document by a magnitude of at least 10 times. You see, just in that idea of copies, I'm going to show you a quick infographic. You're not going to be able to read a word of it. But what you see there is you see sort of the amount of New Testament translations at the time of the printing press. And on the other end are all these other ancient books that we use to understand ancient history. The Bible outpaces the next closest by 10 times the amount of manuscript evidence that comes into agreement. Listen, there's really... These are not believers making up these criteria. By these criteria, the Bible has more historical validity than any other document from the ancient world. So, you know, the Gospels were written within 40 years of Jesus' death by eyewitnesses. These things are not largely disputed, but the problem is that the few people who really do dispute them, they wind up on every news special around Easter every year. (laughs) But let's go another direction. You're entering a conversation with a friend and they're saying the Bible is bogus. You know, they're saying walk away from that. And you're entering that conversation and you're going to go into that conversation with gentleness and respect. Great, a few of you were here last week. You're on it. With gentleness and respect. And you're going to work to get all the way around into the shoes of the person that you're talking to, to understand it from their perspective and to try to get them, uh, you know, to to take a step forward. And you're going to remember that even though this conversation is sort of pretends to be about the Bible and and these outside facts about the Bible, you're going to remember that this conversation is actually about Jesus. And you're going to try to help. Here are some conversation prompts. Here are some ways that you can maybe remove a few obstacles and provide a few clues. Let's start with talking about science. You know, this ancient book, it seems to reflect sometimes some archaic understandings of of the way the world works. You know what? That doesn't surprise me. These these words began as many as 3,500 years ago to be written down. It doesn't surprise me that there are a few places where they seem to have an archaic understanding of the natural world. But you know what surprises me? What surprises me 
is that for all of the discoveries of natural sciences, somehow the Bible is not totally inaccurate. In fact, there are none of these about which it is indisputably wrong. Now, you imagine everything that could have gone into a book that began 3,500 years ago, there is nothing to cause us to throw it out the window. Just take uh, the, the account of, of creation, for example. You might say, well, hey, the, the universe was uh, begun 13.7 billion years ago and, and grew naturally into its present state. But you say the Bible's got 6,000 years from the time that God uh, created it in seven days. Well, first of all, remember this. If God created space and time, then we can't use space and time as an objective measure of God's creation, you see, of God's act of creation. Why? Because space and time bend in his hands. But let's set that aside. And let's say you take a a view of the universe uh, 13.7 billion years old and you take sort of a view of theistic evolution and progress of the universe. Even if you're in that position, the Hebrew for the word day used in Genesis 1 is the word yom, which means day, but could just as easily mean an era or an epoch of an undetermined length of time. You see, somehow, somehow, the Bible navigates it. God said, let there be light. Do you know what scientists are arguing that all matter is composed of? Light. Photons. It's amazing. I can't believe that the Bible survives after all that's been discovered. We ought to take the word of God at his word. Or you can argue from the voice of Scripture. Biblical criticism emerged in the early 20th century in Germany trying to discriminate between the different voices that are found in the Bible. Now, the Bible was written by three dozen different authors in different locations, different languages. It doesn't surprise me that you can find the voice of Paul, that you can find the voice of Moses, you can find the voice of David in the Bible. That doesn't surprise me a bit. But you know what surprises me? is that if you take God at his word, you can hear a singular voice, a common voice running straight through the pages of Scripture from back to front. In fact, the early churches, they went through the process of canonization, of providing an authoritative list of the books of the Bible. They weren't out there conferring authority on some books over others. What they were doing was they were recognizing the voice of of God in certain texts. It doesn't surprise me that you can hear different voices in the Bible. What amazes me is that when you take God at his word, you can hear his voice all the way throughout. Or how about Jesus? Look, read the account in Genesis of Abraham taking his son Isaac up the mountain and almost sacrificing him and then not and turning to him and saying, listen, the Lord himself will provide the sacrifice. Tell me that isn't about Jesus, the Son of God who became a sacrifice on our behalf. Or read David's Psalm 22, the psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross when he said, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you read in Psalm 22 uh, these words, my bones are out of joint. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. 
This, what, what could that be? That's, that's even before Romans were practicing crucifixion. They pierce my hands and my feet. They cast lots for my garment. Tell me what that's about, if that isn't about the crucifixion of Jesus. Or read Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. It doesn't surprise me that the New Testament is about Jesus. What surprises me, 66 books, three dozen authors, over 1,500 years, every page of it, you see the face of Jesus Christ, every page. The voice of Scripture speaks. Is this book different from other books? If we take God at His word. But that's the question. It's the if. Today, if you hear God's word, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear the voice of God, don't turn away like the disobedient. Jesus explained this by the parable of the sower. He said the word of God is like a farmer casting seed. In the seed it falls in all kinds of different places. Some of it falls on rocky ground and it can't grow. Some of it falls among weeds and it gets choked out. And some of it falls on hard soil. Hard soil that's been stepped on, that's been pressed down, that's been walked on too many times and the seed can't get in. But if your heart is open, if the soil is broken up, if the soil is softened, if you'll humble yourself and not harden your heart, but hear the voice of God, then the seed can enter. As Jesus' brother James put it in James 1, Verse 21, therefore get rid of all the moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. That's so prevalent. Come on, there's plenty of that. And Turn away from that and humble your heart and open your heart up to the living word. Oh, it's easy to go the other direction. It's easy to find the arguments to resist the word of God, to harden your heart. Put it away. Is that really what you would choose? Put it away and receive the word of God implanted able to save your soul. Friends, we're over time, but I want to say just one more word. We lost, uh, we lost Billy Graham this week. 99 years faithfully preaching the gospel. But we also lost someone else you might not know. A friend and member of this church named Paul Farron passed away on Friday, and he's a musician. And he played for three of Billy Graham's crusades and loved to come and and to offer his gifts to soften hearts with music to receive the word. But of all the stories of Billy Graham I read this week, the one that stuck out to me was this. When he was a young man, when he was already in his ministry, he said, I came to a point where I had doubts about the veracity of Scripture, and I I was wrestling with whether I could trust this word of God that I was preaching so actively. And and he was engaged with a, a dialogue with a friend who said, you ought to turn away from that. You know, you ought to be more sophisticated than that. And he He wrestled with it and he went outside and he sat down on a stump and he prayed and he made the decision and he said, Lord, I decide right now that I, for the rest of my days, will take you at your word. I believe your word. The seed implanted is able to bring life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, there are so many things that can 
harden our hearts, including our own inclinations to choose away from you, apart from you, different from you. So Lord, penetrate, we pray. Break through everything that we're using to isolate ourselves from you and speak truth to us that we can know who we are, who you are, and know salvation in your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to our First Prez podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at www.first-prez.org.